What is it like year after year? How hard is it to rebuild? Steve Patterson has that story. We left two hours before the house burned down. It's heartbreaking. Our younger son hasn't slept alone in his bed for one night in it'll, almost three years. Um, and that is a constant daily reminder of what we've been through. Both of our children, uh, their best friends lost their homes. Some of my closest friends lost their homes. 25% of our school community lost their homes. So it's such a unique situation to go through something that is so awful, but to go through it with so many people you know. Um, and there's something actually healing about that. So we felt really strongly that we needed to go through this with our community. If we moved back to San Francisco, they wouldn't know what we were going through. We also had her parents here. They lost their houses as well, uh, their house as well and we wanted to continue together. We thought the best way was to all rebuild. I have to find something positive out of this. And what that is, is that we have each other. Yeah, that's all We have matters. our family. Everybody's safe. Everyone that we know that's lost their home is safe. And it's just tough. We'll always have the memories. You know, the memories are going to be there. But we'll build new ones. Yeah. We'll rebuild. We'll definitely rebuild. Oh, yeah. Tell me about um, starting fresh. What's it been like to rebuild on a place that, you know, was so destroyed? That's a tough question to answer. Yeah. I mean, where you start is having the debris removed. Then your mind goes to all of this toxic, burnt ashes, whatever else is in it. Yeah. They're carting it off, and in my brain, I'm thinking, oh, so now where are you going to put it? Do you feel any safer? I do feel safer. I mean, I, 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 I do. It's more efficient? Much more efficient. Oh, gosh, yes. Way more efficient. Yeah. Safer, that's a really, that's a tough word. Yeah. I, I think because I'm broken, you know, where the PTSD is, I don't know. I mean, I'm that's broken. You know, it's, it's so darn sad. The size and spread of these fires now tearing through the West have already been historic, fueled by these high temperatures, low humidity, and powerful winds. It's not yet even the height of fire season. We have clear evidence from very careful, objective scientific research that global warming is elevating the risk of uh, wildfire in California and more broadly in the Western United States. Over the region as a whole, the uh, total area burn has uh, increased around tenfold in the last four decades, and about half of that increase is attributable to the effects of long-term warming on vegetation dryness. On a nationwide scale, we know that 84% of the wildfires across our nation are actually started by people. That's another piece of the puzzle that we can fix. So instead of smoky bear in the middle of the woods, we need a smoky bear in the middle of suburbia telling us that only you can prevent the fires that are threatening your homes. Today, nearly 80% of the homes that were destroyed here have been or are being rebuilt. And while the community is coming back, the pain still lingers. What goes through your head and your heart when you see this current spat of fires? that are burning not only in California, but now Oregon and Washington and all these other places that we haven't had before. It's a lot of disbelief that 
it's happening again, four years in a row now. Um, and to see again that it's now we have the biggest fire in California. Um, after we had the biggest fire in California the year prior and the year prior to that. And it's also really re-triggering and re-traumatizing for those of us who've been through it. So it's almost like we never get a chance to heal because it just continues to happen. Well, you can't really do anything but keep an eye on it. It's tough. It's tough. It may happen yeah. every year for the rest of your lives. Exactly. You're this, prepared for that. This may be our new normal. Now, Al, I'm at the site of the Valley Fire outside of San Diego. Thousands of acres burned and look like this. Firefighters were injured and many homes and structures were lost. As we just heard in that piece there from Steve, it's just so devastating to try to build back from. Yeah, I remember being at the Paradise Fire and, and seeing whole neighborhoods wiped clean. So uh, only imagining again what those folks are going through. And, and we're seeing haunting images of destruction all over the globe, not just in America, but polarized views on climate change and the effect it has play into politics despite the science. So what is the responsibility of people in positions of power? Gina McCarthy, the former EPA administrator in the Obama administration and current president and CEO of the Natural Resources Defense Council, joins us now. Uh, Dr. McCarthy, thank you for joining us. We so appreciate it. Al Savannah, it's great to be here with you. Uh, first off, our, our climate is being referred to as being in crisis. What do you see as the most urgent climate issue in front of us right now? Well, simply to take action. And the most urgent action we can take is to vote. You know, you're absolutely right. Everybody needs to be all in on climate. And the problem is we do not have the leadership at the federal level that's going to deliver the actions we need today to address our climate crisis. And there's opportunities for people today. Look, I know that at least me, I'm not happy with the lack of federal leadership. It disturbs me when we have a president that's sort of giggling. Um, at the site of total devastation that we're seeing in the western U.S., not to mention the hurricane season that we're facing with double storms just hitting and hitting and all the crazy windstorms in the Midwest. You know, we know everybody is being impacted by climate. We need leadership. We need new leadership who's going to recognize science, pay attention to us, and help us move forward. And, and honestly, every one of us has something we can do. We can take a look at our own communities. We have across the United States, while the federal government has done nothing but deny climate, pull out of the Paris Agreement, and roll back all the protections we had in place that would start addressing climate change, we now, we also have uh, governors across the country, more than 24 of them, who are all in on taking action in climate. We have hundreds of cities that are acting. We can work with those governors and with those cities, and we can express our rage and our demand for climate action by voting in November. That's the most important thing you can do if you're worried about the climate crisis that is impacting all of us. And honestly, Al, one of the most important things we can do is recognize that climate change isn't about the planet. We now know it's about people. 
It's about our health, our well-being, our safety. It is about the next generation. And while I want to see young people standing up and, and speaking up and protesting, I want to be with them every step of the way. Because I have two grandchildren myself, and there's no way I'm going to stop fighting uh, climate change until my dying breath. And all of us have to take that attitude, especially knowing that the people most damaged by climate change are the very same people that have been most damaged in this pandemic. Everybody seems surprised that, that the black community was being hardest hit, but if you're in the environmental world, you know well that the poor and the black communities and the brown communities are always hit first and hardest with traditional pollutants, and they're, all, they're the ones most at risk in climate. So oh. climate change is not just bad for us, but it's damn unfair. It actually is continuing the systemic racism that none of us want to see to continue. Whoa. Now, Gina, you mentioned the importance of voting. And as a former EPA administrator, you know what those leaders are capable of. You know what government is capable of and what it's not. What role can and should government be playing in this crisis? Well, I think you have to look at government action at the federal, state, and local level, because we live in a democracy. The one thing I have learned is that the federal government isn't the innovator. The federal government has to be pushed every step of the way. Now, I know that Vice President Biden has a great climate plan. It's focused on equity, and it's focused on health and moving us forward. But I also know that, it, but that people have to not just vote, but they have to keep demanding that all those plans are put in place. That's why I'm at the Natural Resources Defense Council. We have to keep advocating. We have to communicate and work together. We have to demand more of our businesses, not just the fossil fuel companies, to step up and take ownership of what they've done, but also businesses everywhere have to start looking at how they're investing. Pension funds have to look at how they're investing. Make sure that we're divesting of the past dirty fuels that we're relied on and really go all in on clean energy. You know, the exciting thing about clean energy is that it doesn't just help us with challenges of climate change and pollution, but the most exciting thing is it's the way to get us out of the, the economic doldrum that we find ourselves. One of the biggest damage of all we're seeing on climate is that people are also facing an incredible pandemic. People are just beaten down. We need to stand up and say our future has to be clean energy. It's healthier for all of us. It will grow jobs. Clean energy has three times as many people working in it as fossil fuels. We need to have a just transition, but we need that transition to happen and happen now. So if we can all be all in, then we can grab our future once again, and we can deliver for those young people a, fu a future that we will be proud to hand to them. Gina McCarthy, thank you so much. We really appreciate your insight and your input. Savannah? There's no doubt climate change is going to be an issue on voters' minds when Americans cast their ballots this November. So how will Trump and Biden each handle this crisis? With November 3rd rapidly approaching, let's take a look at where both candidates stand on climate change. 
Since Trump entered office in 2016, he's consistently lowered environmental protection regulations, citing that they're crippling to the economy, including a historic departure from the Paris Climate Accord in 2017. I was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris. A departure that Biden plans to reverse immediately if he wins in November. While we're standing around not doing much, the rest of the world is moving ahead. First thing I would do the day one as president, I'd rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, which we, Barack and I, put together. Under Trump's leadership, the Department of the Interior proposed the largest ever oil and gas lease of over 78 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico. Trump also signed an executive order for the expansion of offshore drilling. Trump then reversed himself just last week off the coast of Florida and up the Atlantic coast. In a few moments, I will sign a presidential order extending the moratorium on offshore drilling on Florida's Gulf Coast and expanding it to Florida's Atlantic coast as well as the coasts of Georgia and South Carolina. A move he hopes might win him votes in the tough swing state. Biden, on the other hand, plans to ban any new drilling permits on public lands or waters. Instead, he plans to shift the country's focus to renewable energy options with a goal of doubling offshore wind by 2030. When Donald Trump thinks about renewable energy, he sees windmills somehow causing cancer. When I think about these windmills, I see American manufacturing, American workers racing to dominate the global market. Biden wants to create 10 million jobs focused on climate change and wants the whole country to be net zero in carbon emissions no later than 2050. Trump, meanwhile, repealed the Obama-era clean power plan that required states to cut emissions by 30% by 2030 and was expected to create as many as 560,000 jobs in the clean energy field. He claims it caused an increase in energy prices. Instead, he focused on preserving coal mining jobs and approving drilling along the Dakota Access and Keystone XL pipelines, the latter of which is still not completed. Today we take one more step in putting the jobs, wages, and economic security of American citizens first. When it comes to the broader environment, Trump proposed a 26% budget cut for the EPA in fiscal year 2021. Meanwhile, Biden's team unveiled a $2 trillion environmental policy plan. It turns out public opinion is on the side of limiting climate change. According to a study released on August 24th, 68% of Americans believe that the U.S. government should be doing more to deal with global warming, a trend that the Biden campaign is banking on with their clean energy revolution. As Election Day grows nearer, we'll be keeping an eye on both candidates and their plans to fight climate change. Well, coming up after a quick break, what can we do to help our planet and help spark change? Stay with us. I started coming here before I can remember with my mother and my grandmother, and my grandmother's parents built this cabin in 1907. It was a two-story cabin. It had wow. glass, crystal windows in three of the bedrooms. It had these big redwood beams in the living room. from thinking it was gone for sure to being hopeful that it was still here. We know it was here for a day. And so it was a roller coaster ride of up and down. And when we finally saw the photographs from the embedded photographers that come up with the fire department, that was really helpful to actually know that it was gone. My daughters are very interested in rebuilding. They love it here. And I guess 
I hope is based in the youth. I see the world youth mobilized for very important uh, causes. I see them mobilized in relation to gender equality. I see them mobilized in relation to climate. I see them mobilized against racism. I see them mobilized for international cooperation. They are much more cosmopolitan, much more universalists than my own generation. And uh, it is this dynamism of the youth that makes me be hopeful, because let's be frank, my generation largely failed to address the challenges that the world faces. The youth seems to be much more determined to do so. We always look to our youth. Uh, do you, are you more optimistic because of this generation that's coming up? Yes. I think it's our best hope is the generation that's coming up and that understood already, and we see it in so many ways uh, around the world, understood already that uh, either we are united or we'll be doomed. While the leaders in our country are divided, the younger generation is stepping up. They go out and strike. They don't mince their words when addressing world leaders. It is this generation that could be the key to caring for our planet. The climate crisis isn't something that we're going to have to deal with in the future. We are already seeing the effects of it right now. I was there when the campfire broke out in Paradise, California. We ended up receiving a lot of the smoke and we had to do the same things that we did just in the recent weeks when the entire West Coast was on fire. We rolled up wet towels and put them under windows and doors to keep the smoke from seeping in because it was inflaming my asthma. Um, I became very sick. Now it's like a repeat of that history for me personally. I am a 15-year-old climate activist and founder of Earth Uprising International. My thoughts on the whole Generation Z as the leader of the climate movement is a bit, it's a bit inaccurate because this is an intergenerational movement and young people are getting involved at bigger and bigger levels because we are seeing this impending climate catastrophe and we really feel that anxiety and we're being asked to plan for our futures but we have nothing to plan for and so then we feel really angered and motivated. My name is Jamie Margolin, I'm 18 years old and I'm a co-founder of the International Youth Climate Justice Organization Zero Hour. When I first got involved in climate activism what I told people was that in the future we won't be able to go to school because we'll be too busy running from the next um, climate fueled disaster. People told me I was being dramatic and I was being an alarmist but it hasn't even been two years since I started and we're already starting to see what scientists have been telling us for years. If we were able to go to school at this time we still wouldn't be able to on the west coast because it's very unsafe for us. That air quality causes all sorts of effects to your body. It can cause health issues in the future. But we aren't the ones who decide the city and federal budgets. We aren't the ones who vote on the bills. We aren't the ones who are actually in power to change things. From the summer of 2017 to the summer of 2018, we were working nonstop organizing and organizing to create youth climate marches in Washington, D.C. and what ended up being 25 cities around the world. We haven't really been ingrained in the system that a lot of adults are ingrained in. So we think outside of the box and we don't think about what's politically possible when it comes to actions to take about the climate crisis. We just think about what really needs to happen. I feel like people could often think like, oh yeah, what's the point? Why should young people even bother if we're not gonna be heard? But I think that the answer is intergenerational organizing. 
We need the young people's energy and the wisdom of the elders and people who have been doing this together. We need adults backing us up in our activism. And so I believe that we are going to come out of this pandemic much stronger as a movement as a whole than before. While yes, like we are often dismissed, overall we have contributed to a massive cultural shift. We need climate action within the next 10 years in order to save our planet. Now, Al, I've had the pleasure of talking to so many of these both young and first-time voters. And what's so cool is that many of them identify as Republican, many of them identify as Democrat. This particular issue does not feel partisan. If anything, it maybe feels generational, and this generation just really seems to care across the board. You know, Savannah, I've got a 22-year-old who has uh, marched in the strikes, and I have an 18-year-old who's excited about voting for the first time and making a difference. Uh, well, successfully addressing climate change is going to require action and activism. So, so how can we truly make a difference in restoring our planet? One person helping to lead that fight, producer, actor, and environmentalist, is Ian Somalhalden. Uh, Ian, here's a question for you. What do, what do you see as the most urgent threat in the climate crisis right now? By the way, thank you guys for, for having me on. Listen, the, 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 the biggest urgent threat that we have is this carbon output that we, that we have up there, not just the legacy load of carbon, but what we're putting into the atmosphere every, every year. And that's why we f shot a film on it that took seven years to give a real understanding of how to get out of this, simple solutions that actually work. That is what we're facing, is how do we not only to mitigate or minimize our carbon output, but actually draw down the carbon that is left in this legacy load of carbon. Because at the end of the day, we could take every car up the road, every maritime shipping vessel out of the ocean, or every plane out of the sky, shut down every coal-fired power plant there is, and climate change would still happen at an alarming rate. And that is because of agriculture and carbon. Now, Ian, like you just said, carbon emissions, this is this huge part of this conversation. You mentioned your film, that's this new doc Netflix documentary, Kiss the Ground. It focuses specifically on a way to do that, and it's really interesting, and I feel like a lot of people might not have heard of this until seeing this film, Sustainable Farming to Regress the Surplus of Carbon in the Air. Tell us specifically about what this film reveals and how you hope to contribute to combating climate change. Right, right. Thank you so much. Um, so it's it's called Kiss the Ground, and it's actually not even about sustainable farming. It's about regenerative farming. The whole idea that the only way to get rid of the amount of carbon we have in the air is to do it at scale, right? Other than, you know, oceans and massive, massive uh, areas of the, land, of the world, the biggest areas are agriculture. So it's called biosequestration, otherwise known as drawdown, right, which is using growing plants and different ways of grazing animals to draw down all of that carbon through biosequestration, store it safely back in the ground where it belongs, all that carbon, and feed all the microorganisms. Because much like the human body, you know, our health, the health of a human being is completely based on the microbiome of our gut. The same thing with the earth, right? The microbiome of soil is how the earth heals itself. It's how the earth grows food that then pulls carbon out of the sky. So unfortunately, modern agriculture is, was not designed for the betterment of the soil. So by changing the agricultural systems to regenerative farming, and here's the big kicker, and I'll say this very quickly, what no one, none of us actually ever understood, right? We took, it took seven years to make this film. 
I shot the initial footage of this film nine years ago in Zimbabwe. When we, and this is the big one that people just hate to hear, when we till soil, which is what we do every year, we release what? Carbon. No one thinks about that. When you damage soil, it releases carbon. So that's when everyone says, wait, what? So when we stop tilling our soil and we design our, our planning practices around no-till, the world will shift on its axis. When China, Russia, the United States, India, and the EU switch to regenerative farming practices, the world will shift on its axis and we will literally reverse climate change by 2050. That is exciting. This is not all doom and gloom. Mm. Sorry, go ahead. Ian, let me ask you a question. Uh, uh, so I'm not a farmer. Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't do farming. Who, who do you see as allies? How do we, who are not part of that process, uh, become allies? So it's a really great question. Listen, this is obviously an intergenerational um, movement, but I will say this: when millennials, Gen Zs, uh, even baby boomers demand that every piece of spinach they eat, every piece of broccoli they eat, or every chickpea they eat, every bite of cereal they eat come from a regenerative farm. Every mall development, high school, college, uh, sports arena. You see what I mean? You can, we can do this at scale. So again, yeah. it goes back to empowered, conscious consumers. But every day that they leave their home, they have the ability to vote with their dollar. And that's the most powerful vote that there is. And are they going to be voting with that dollar to companies who are not just sustainable, but that are regenerative? And again, this cannot be something that, that drives the prices up, right? This is what happened with the whole organic movement. It's too expensive for families. You know, I grew up very, very poor uh, in the deep, deep south in Louisiana. Um, there's no way my family would have been able to afford, you know, organic food back then. And so the reality of it is that we have to make it affordable, which we can, because we can do it at scale. And this film offers real solutions that is just so exciting. I've seen 25 or 30 cuts of our film. There's not one time I've seen it where I'm not teary. And that teary is not just anger, it's hope, it's excitement. And that is what I think people will see um, on Netflix September 22nd. Now, Ian, you mentioned that this is an intergenerational fight, and that's, of course, because it's an intergenerational issue. It's something that affects all of us who are here on the planet. And if you don't mind yeah. me asking in a personal take on that, how does being a father, you know, I know you have a daughter, contribute to your commitment to this cause, thinking about her future? Well, that's the thing, right? That That's what's so crazy about all of this, is I was in this climate fight before I had a daughter. We have enough healthy soil left for 60 harvests so that's 60 years of food when i'm holding my daughter i see her at three years old and say in 60 years you're only going to be 63 years old i don't want a world where my child at 20 30 40 50 and 60 is fighting because some new you know storm systems have you know completely you know destroyed the entire eastern seaboard and the whole southeast and there's mass you know uh, migration from the eastern seaboard in the southeast up to the north and midwest and, and northern uh, northwest of this country, which is where we're going. That's what the computer models say. Uh, and the, the, the biggest organizations ultimately that want this science and have the data is the United States military 
and the biggest insurance companies in the world because they are actually at the greatest risk of loss. And so the science is there. It's the intergenerational um, buy-in ultimately that this is their time because I look at what's happening in the youth of the world and how amazing it is and what Greta's been able to do. But here's my question. Who's financing these young ones? Who's organizing these young ones? Who's putting together the structure you know, if you're thinking about massive global change from a policy level, from a corporate level, from an institutional educational level, it takes guidance, it takes structure, it takes finance. You know, that finance is not just gonna fall out of the sky. We've gotta do it through business, unfortunately. And that is, you know, for profits, giving back and using not just sustainable business practices, regenerative business practices will ultimately change the world. And that is what is so, um, exciting for me and that puts the power into the people's hands which makes them feel empowered makes them feel part of the process and gives structure and finance to this whole thing that we're going to need to do at scale you know well well Ian Summerholder you have certainly give us, given us literally food for thought we appreciate you sharing uh, your time thanks so much my friend such a huge fan of you guys thank you for doing what you do we love you Thank you. Of course, fixing our planet isn't just about climate change. A key component, waste management. Carrie Sanders traveled to the Maldives back in February to see how they're working through this challenge. I'm more than 8,600 miles from New York in the Maldives, a country of 1,100 plus islands here in the Indian Ocean. And wow, stunning clear water, amazing beaches. It's why more than a million and a half tourists come here every year. But every tourist who comes here also creates a problem. An average tourist creates six pounds of garbage uh, daily, and that's quite a lot. The numbers are staggering. Tourists and residents produce a mind-boggling 636 million pounds of garbage a year. And this is where that garbage winds up. Much of it plastic. 700 tons a day. 30 years ago, this was a small island with a lagoon and a coral reef. Today, it's three times its size, appropriately nicknamed Trash Island. The garbage is shipped to Trash Island on barges. The government here estimates 25% is lost overboard in the Indian Ocean. Add to that plastics carried here by ocean currents from other nearby countries. I went into the water to look. Along the reefs teeming with fish, we found some of that plastic garbage sinks, but most float, washing up on beaches which are littered in those plastics. To demonstrate the problem, I grabbed a burlap bag and started collecting. That's two and a half minutes of picking up plastic, and I see it as far as the eye can see. For years to prevent the growing plastic soup, just as we do here in the U.S., Maldivians tried recycling. First glance, this looks like a success. This plastic will ultimately be recycled. But the government here in the Maldives has a different idea to eliminate single-use plastics so they never have a mountain like this again. 
It was theatrical, but to make a point, the government and the Maldives held an underwater cabinet meeting. Eventually, a new law of the land here. By 2023, single-use plastics should no longer be available. No more bottles, bags, and baby diapers. Collectively, those three items make up 80% of the single-use plastic garbage. The inspiration for this countrywide undertaking comes from a garbage experiment on the Maldivian island of Suniva Fushi. The owners of a 100-acre resort hotel wondered how much could they reduce that six pounds per day per tourist. They first took aim at plastics, and the biggest enemy, the water bottle. With some false starts and a few dead ends, how's it add up? We've been able to reduce it to half a pound now. From six pounds to a half a pound? Yeah, exactly. That's less than a tenth of what had been dumped. The question, if widespread reduction in garbage eventually works here, could we in the U.S. follow? What's driving all of this? Is it just tree-hugging? No, it's got to make financial sense. That's why our program's called the Waste to Wealth Program. And is it making you money? Is it saving you money? It's saving us money. And that dollars and cents success is why other hotels are beginning to do the same thing. All of it with the incalculable benefit of preserving this beauty, which of course is why tourists come here to begin with. Kerry Sanders, NBC News, Suniva Fushi, the Maldives. Our thanks to Kerry and everyone who contributed to this important and clearly timely discussion. Al, the expert, I've loved joining you for this. Well, I loved having you and your, your, your outlook on this as well, Savannah. And in fact, no matter where we live, whether it's on a coast, the Midwest, we are all affected. The next generation is going to judge us by what we do today with climate change. Question is, is it too late to change that legacy? Well, we want to thank you so much for watching Planet 2020 and have a great day. The death toll right. Wow, that was interesting. Very interesting. A lot of stuff going on in climate change. I, I knew that was very, very uh, impactful because of what's happening now and storms and good um, morning, you guys. I pray that some of y'all enjoyed the little insight. Uh, it went kind of nifty than what I expected, but um, I see something interesting. I put it on. I do understand a lot of individuals all over the world get different news, and it's the news that's coming from our end on America and what's going on over here. And I know I sound like uh, I really feel horrible. Um, I've been taking. I had. I'll talk about that on the next episode. But anyway, um, God bless you guys. Have a Awesome, awesome, awesome day, okay? Hey, you guys. It's Dr. D. Good morning, good morning. Oh, my goodness. I, I just... I was up. My hours, my time is just all over the place. And, um... That's a night I I wasn't really feeling that good. I did some work and uh, wind up 
vomiting. I was throwing up and I had a, a vertical episode, so I had to like stop everything. Yeah. I just feel like, nah, I just want to just get back in the bed, which I probably will. Whoa. I just feel so drained. I didn't do nothing. I didn't go out with the thing yesterday. I fixed her some soup. And some tea when I drunk the tea. It's like I threw it up. It's like, whoa, so with this. Good weekend. People, um, feel so sorry for the people. Lake Charles, man, he got hit again. It's just hurricane. I know. I'm gonna go out to him because I say, man. It's not, a, it's not an easy thing. You get traumatized when you just, like, when we saw it, I was like, oh, not another one. I'm like, my God. Man. People barely making it now because of this COVID job loss. And now, hitting with hurricanes, as you heard. On a previous episode, the climate change. I, I remember. I can I can remember almost twenty five years ago in school, and it was talking about that and the things that need to be done. I remember I did a paper on uh, sustaining the environment with green energy. Didn't even understand it. But they was rolling out a plan back then to prevent what we see now. Even though we do understand they do have um, this harp agency that creates storms. They, they claim that they test storms to see how to react, what's the outcome, how to deal with it. But it has really been a... Tragedy to so many. If you're going to test something, implement a plan to make sure you take care of the people you're testing it on. Hello. <laughs> you know. And it had one guy on the news. <laughs> I didn't recall that, but he said he didn't rebuild five times. He said he's done. <laughs> he ain't going nowhere. And you get... You get to that point. You get to that point where you're tired. It's like, Lord, I'm so tired of these hurricanes. I'm done. I'm not. I'm not going anywhere. If it come, 
you know, lose everything. We just put it out there and but that leaving and evacuating and I mean it's caused so much and like and then the news reporters the, I find the news reporters can find the most damaging questions and in, in insensitive questions in the midst of stuff, right? And and the lady lost everything and the lady gonna ask her, the reporter gonna ask her you say, well, um, your area has been affected twice, and you lost everything. Why did you stay this time? I mean, couldn't you have uh, been able, you know, she was like, in so many words, it's like, well, you knew it was going to be horrible. Why did you stay? And like that lady said, <laughs> you say, ma'am, I have no more money. You know, the hotel, the shelters are limited because of the COVID. So they can't pack the the shelters like they used to because the law had made some shelters used to be packed with people. I think we used to have, when I was in a shelter for the hurricane, uh, it's like maybe 50 feet away from each other. That might still be too much. I mean, you right next to somebody, right? So it is serious. Um, she said, I... I you know, during a during even though hotels have to manage, I believe that it should automatically be a system. I know y'all always say I don't even want to give everything away. Yeah, why not? This country have so much money that they just playing around throwing it here and there. Why not do disaster storms and people evacuate? Why not just waive their hotel fee? You see what I'm saying? Why the government have to make a big issue about paying these people? For taking care of the people of the country that you claim that is so good, right? I mean that'd be only fair. We all these, I mean, decades after decades, I've seen where they automatically when something happened in a foreign country, we go and get into their business and we want to ship food, we ship resources, you know. And I can say the same thing because I have a mission in Kapali, Uganda. And I'm not able to ship food or anything like that, but I ship support, you know, uh, any donations that come, barely none now, because I really haven't uh, set up no fundraiser or been very present and active online with it, which will come forth um, for 2021. Um, But in the meantime... I still have a presence there. You see what I'm saying? I have a home there. Um, And they have aid all over the place. But when it comes down to the American citizens, I'm like, you know, and then the hotel industry, they're hurting. So, of course, their price is going to jump. So, like she (laughs) said... She said, I don't have no more money to give out. I have nothing. I'm drained. The young man said, I'm done. I'm not doing anything. I done rebuilt five times. <laughs> and it, it really puts you in this traumatized state to, like, you know, I'm damned if I do it and I'm damned if I don't. So I guess I just stay. And I'm not going to say I'm just damned. <laughs> I'm not going to speak that. On myself and have people speaking that on themselves. But when you look at everything, it's like, oh my gosh, 
Lord, I need you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You really have to sit down and say, shake your head. All of it is vanity because at the end of it, we can lose everything. But when life, life is so important, right? Life is cherishable. So life is it. That's what matters. And if we can get back to that scenario, you guys, I think we'll do good if we put life first, put humanity first, you know, and, and take precautions and be careful and be considerate, be compassionate, be lovable. All this evil stuff and evil thinking, evil doing, that is just so evil, <laughs> you know. Don't, don't, don't let the devil use you. So many people let the devil use them, they don't even think it's the devil. They think it's them and they're getting things done. No, you letting the devil use you. That's evil. You got an evil heart, evil ways, and even the Lord say your heart wicked. And when the Lord say your heart wicked, man, that's bad. <laughs> and and nobody can sit here and say, oh, nah, this and that. Nah. We all was born and shaped in iniquity. So we all have that little devil. Oh, excuse me. We all have that little evil tendency that crops up. That try to test us to see if we're going to go to the other side. You know? And that's all a part of upbringing. Well, I'm not going to stay on here long. I just want to share... Um, my days just flew by. I seen my last post was on Wednesday. I said, whoa. I thought I posted something, you know, but I went into my work and I had to stay focused. And then yesterday I just had to chill out, you know. Um, I had watched this movie with um, Nicole Kidman. I never seen her in that type of role, but she she did. She played that role, man. The name of the movie is Destroyer. You know, she's an FBI cop. And uh, she really did good with this one. Uh, she played that role. That was a whole different tone for her. And uh, very interesting. It's It moves slow, you know. But I see that the director really wanted the, the, the audience to engage. To be engaged with the movie. So you definitely be engaged with the empathy, the compassion, you know, and uh, my Lord. And she took some hits. I'm like, dang. And that's another thing that kind of disturbs me. I've been watching a little lately a lot of some of the little series and the movies. Why they got to hit the woman? I mean, they really like, whoa, you know. And I, I I can understand when it's time for the combat fighting. But I've seen some moves where men just kick a woman and slap a woman and stump on a woman. I'm like, oh, that's kind of violent. I don't... That does something to me. Slap, I mean, that affects, that affects your mental state. It really affects um, your very existence. Lord, I don't know if this does something to me. I think I might write a letter. <laughs> no, serious, because I don't, it's like lately, can the, can the movie directors kind of 
slack up on that sometimes. We don't have to see that. And it's really been increasing lately, too. And and by me saying that, this is Domestic Violence Month. And um, I really don't appreciate it. No, because as you get older, your body remembers everything. That's a, that's one key thing I see. Your body remembers the scars and the surgeries, the pain, and at certain times in the seasons, it triggers. Like right now, my um, where I had my protocol for the cancer treatment, when it rains or whatever, that thing irritates me. It feels like I'm literally having shocks, and maybe that's um still. Internal trauma to the muscles, maybe. But um, some things is like you really have to really sit there and think and really take care of yourselves, you guys. We got to take care of our bodies. We got to take care of our relationships. We got to take care of our heart and our mind. And don't allow people uh, to manipulate you or challenge you. Because I, I've, sometimes I sit down and I think about the different scenarios and relationships. And I can see how people really manipulated their way into your life. Yeah. You know, they play on your innocence. Uh, things that uh, you're curious about, your curiosity. So they'll play on it. On it to deceive you and betray you. And you have to know the key words, the key factors. You know, a person that's sick, that's a cycle. I have seen a scene where this guy caught himself falling in love with this woman. It was a white guy with this black, beautiful woman. She was beautiful. And you could tell he wanted her just because of her beauty. Right? And she held her ground. But look how he manipulated her, right? They were sitting down eating ice cream. She, matter of fact, she was a, a tutor at this real estate mansion. So you know these people was real wealthy, and it was in London, right? You could tell from the, the scenes and the accent, and it was a very culture-based movie. But she was more of a part of a more elite Back then, I guess you could say she was in that category of the Moors. Because, you know, the Moors was this black family that was very elite. Kingships, you know what I'm saying? They had wealth. You know, they carried themselves in in an astute manner. <laughs> and um, and this white boy wanted her. So he played the role, too. And so... This particular night, it rained, and because of the grounds and how they have to roll out, it it, it took almost probably um two or three miles to even get to the the castle, right? You know how back then, you know they had the the estates way off the road, so you got to drive into. I think that's a beautiful thing. I would love to have something like that one day. And um, so because of the weather, he wasn't able to ride out. So he had to stay the night. And he was, I believe, he was the nephew of the 
the owners, the the heirs, or the Harriers. Um, <laughs> so she was down in the kitchen fixing a bowl of ice cream, and so he was in the kitchen, right? And he was just watching her, and so they had they dialogue, and she sat down, and he asked her some questions, like the resume that she had. She was a law student. She was very, very intelligent. He asked her, why would you work in a place like this? And um, she gave the, the description and reason why, and it would alleviate her to always uh, be looked at sensuous and sexual, right? And instead of her education be between her legs, she want her education to be respected from her brain, right? And so that key thing she said, he worked on it, y'all. He worked on it. He manipulated her until one night uh, after that because they had a conversation. And, you know, nights and days went by. And uh, he came back the next week. And uh, and she was intrigued about him. And you could tell they, they was both um, seen. They both was getting into each other. And then this particular night, he just knocked on her door. And there it is. They commenced, right? So after that, everything was all good. I mean, everything was good, y'all. <clears throat> Let me show you how... <clears throat> Let me show you how sick narcissists are in their mind. And I, and I, by me watching that, it kind of reveals something that I know happened to somebody else. And that's why they became so furious because in their mind, they see what they want to see. Now, they had a baker, and now this he was a handsome guy too, but they also had a gardener and a young lady. They had another um, staff. They had a nice little staff in their, in, their, in their house. Well, mansion or whatever you want to call it. So he was baking a cake for the children. It was all about the children. The whole movie was about the children. But, uh, wait, what's the name of the movie? Shoot. I never got the name of the movie. So y'all can go check it out. But you got you got It's a series on Netflix. But anyway. So the, the, the baker, you know, he was the cook. He was a good cook, too. So he was baking this cake for the children. And you know how we do. when Because I do the same thing. When we bat it up before putting it up, you want to taste it, see what's missing. So... He had the spoon. Now, I wouldn't have tasted behind nobody with the spoon, but they did. Yuck. <laughs> he said, tell me what's missing or or is it perfect or do I need to add anything? And um, and then we can put this into the the oven. They say another word. They didn't say oven. They didn't say stove. It was another word. So, everybody, the children tasting, they were saying, oh, I need more strawberries. Oh, I need some lemon. Then the other person said, mm, it tastes pretty good just the way it is. I can taste the cinnamon. And so it came down to the girl, right? So um, he asked her, uh, okay, the vote is getting close. What is missing? So he took the spoon and dipped it in the cake mix, right? And gave it to her. I mean, let her taste it off. And she was like, mm, I think it's lemon. And um. Everybody was like, oh, because you know they already had two votes for the lemon, and they had a vote for the strawberry. 
and they had a vote for the cinnamon. So the 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 gent the young man who was intrigued by the beautiful black woman, right? Uh, he was watching so intensely the man holding the spoon up to the black the young black woman mouth, right? To taste it. He did the same thing to everybody else. That's what kind of tripped me out, and I already knew when I saw that. I said, he's sick in his head. So when she tasted it, she said, hmm, hmm. A little pinch of lemon would do, you know. And they was like, oh. This man turned to a frenzy, right? And so instead, instead of him tasting it from the spoon, he put his hand in the bowl. And he went when he went to put the spoon in his mouth, he backed up and he said, Oh no. And he tasted it with his finger. So let me tell y'all what happened. So later that night, you know, she expected him to come knock on the door, which he didn't and she didn't move. So later on Oh my god, that tastes so good. That's my coffee, you guys. Uh huh. He didn't come for about hours. So she went to his room. Y'all, he was packing his suitcase. was about to leave. And she was like, I don't understand. You say you was coming back to me. This man said, why would I come back to someone who easily could let another man put a spoon in your mouth? I was like, what? <laughs> that did it for me, y'all. I was done. I said, are you serious? I said, that man is a total psycho. And he went into the description and what he saw and how her facial expression was, accepting the spoon in her mouth. And he cannot see himself with someone who can easily... um. Let another man touch her lips. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What is... I was like, oh, my gosh. He is really crazy. This man is crazy. I'm like, how did he get all that out of that when everybody was tasting from the spoon? What is he talking about? But it shows me, you guys, how people's minds are so warped. And he and as you watch the series, you could tell why his mind was like that. But his mind was so warped, his mind was so off cock and so narcissist and so I mean perverted. It was like, are you serious? A spoon man man? Are you serious? You gonna break this girl heart? You gonna invade her and violate her purity? Okay, cause she fell in love, and he somehow he fell in love. He never fell in love like this before, and yang yang yang, like they all do. This a wonderful the women, and men too. Men too, they fall for it too. Y'all see what I'm saying? The manipulation, how he manipulated her into the palm of his hand, and then look how he just like he just used that as a rope, a slingshot. And because of his insecurities, his mindset, right? Wow.
he damaged another person's heart. He damaged, he damaged another person's mindset. That's see, that's hard. So you guys, you gotta really, really be careful. I know. I've, I'm, I'm, all my stuff I've learned, Lord, the hard way. You know, even when I try to protect myself, still got caught up into, to, I guess you can say, um, naiveness. You know. Just, just trying to give people a benefit of doubt in life, and they're evil. Their hearts are evil, and their hearts is about them, and their hearts is what they want, and they don't care who they hurt. And once they get what they want, they're going on to the next pre- the next party. Bunch of predators. That's what I call them, predators. And war unto the ones that's in the body of Christ. they holy predators. Well, I'm going to say unholy predators because if they were holy predators, they'll treat you better. They won't use the same taxes. So that just shows you that even though you get saved, you're not delivered. I know somebody right now still use the same tactics, but just over in the in the spiritual realm now. Still acting the same way, still a hope. You know, still breaking hearts. But making it seem like that's, it's, it's the woman's fault. And at the end of the day, they don't even understand that you got to give account for your action. Period. I don't care how you try to make it look like. And as we see, how proudful we are as as individuals. And I, I pray that God help. And I don't want to walk in pride for nothing, but the pridefulness of individuals, especially in politics. Now, they just showed where um, most of the White House is down because of, uh, they didn't got hit with the COVID, right? Senate House. Now they're saying at least one person in intensive care, right? One person been hospitalized. They still don't want to give the exact date that he was infected so they can go back and trace anybody else that came in contact, right? And he out there boasting, talking about he got a cure and all this kind of stuff. And no repentance, no apology. I mean, that's it's all the show for him. You would think, and my prayer, and I did pray for him. I prayed for that man and said, Lord, I pray that you touch his heart. Did he come out and repent to the people and make things right? Oh, no, baby. He came out waving, having a parade, standing on a balcony. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Ain't no repentance for that. Because guess what? At the end of the day, a narcissist never do wrong. You see? He never do wrong. Everybody else doing wrong. You know? <laughs> and for all those that's in that White House that got it, I feel sorry for them because they're underneath a lot of stress from working underneath this man. And 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 it's it's uh I tell you it's it's a hazard to your 
a hazard to your life. <laughs> a hazard to your life. Excuse me. So, you guys, I'm going to go and um, finish my coffee and uh, put on my scriptures and see what the Lord had me do today. I redesigning my um my nonprofit website. I gotta update it. And probably just to get some rest. So until then, be blessed. Much love.